Psalm 42, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray together. Lord, these words are thick this morning, thick with emotion, thick with feeling, thick with expression, but also thick with truth and thick with guidance and thick with light. So I pray as we pour over them today, as we pour out our soul to you as the psalmist does here in this psalm, God, that you would shape and that you would form us, that you would teach us, that you would move us in the right direction. God, you have the words of life. To whom else shall we go? And so I pray that as we sit under their authority this morning, that you would be glorified, that we would receive comfort, we would receive joy, that we with the psalmist can say that we have hope in God, for you are salvation. Our Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I picked Psalm 42. Lance told me I could really choose any passage. It was just going to be a standalone this morning. And I picked Psalm 42 because A, I love the Psalms. Um, B, I think it's timely. Last week, we didn't celebrate this, but we remembered last week was one year since our last normal worship gathering, or, or the old normal, what used to be normal, before everything changed. And so the Psalms are a good place to go for a number of reasons. Psalms are, as you probably know, songs. And so, as a worship leader, I, I love music, I love psalm, psalms, and I love songs, and I love looking at the ways that the psalmists have crafted these words carefully to be sung for generations and generations by the people of God. They are written both to express and to shape, to express, but then also to shape the emotional life of God's people. And so, I chose Psalm 42 this morning because this psalm helps shape our view of that emotional life as significant and as important in the life of a follower of Christ 
but not as ultimate. And you see that in the way that he speaks to himself in these refrains in verses 5 and verses 11. In fact, this psalm presents us with the tools and methods to stay healthy and oriented in the midst of feeling cast down. That's what I'd like to look at today. Psalm 42 goes along, actually, with the following psalm, Psalm 43. And we know that because they share the same refrain. Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. That's the same refrain that ends Psalm 43 as well. At one point, maybe they were the same song. It says that this is a psalm to the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were members of the priesthood charged with leading worship. So back then, I would have been one of the sons of Korah. This, meant, this, this song is meant for the leading of worship. The, when the church of God, when the people of God has gathered, it is meant for them all to sing. It's meant for the choir. It's also, you'll see uh, right above it, it's the start of book two. So I don't know if you know this or not, but the Psalms are broken down into five categories, five books they call them. And it says, it, right, in the, right in the top, the capital letters there, book two, 42 is the beginning of this string of, of the songs of the sons of Korah, 42 through 49, that introduce the main themes of this second book of the Psalms. J. Clinton McCann, a commentator, says that although the balance of this book two, Psalms 50 through 72, is composed largely of personal psalms, the national themes that are interwoven with the personal emphases of Psalms 42 through 49 legitimize a community reading of this psalm, of these psalms in the post-exile period in order to help Israel deal with the exile and the dispersion that had devastated the nation and disoriented their faith. So although this psalm has a personal, very personal, very vulnerable feel to it, it is meant for the people of God. disoriented in their faith, living in a devastated nation. This kind, of, this kind of characterizes the church today. After this year of not being able to do the things that we once did, it's not just a personal diary entry of a guy long, long time ago. This psalm is now, as it was then, a song for the discouraged. You could also call this spiritual depression. I don't know if you've heard that term or not, but this is all of us at times. Spiritual depression is not, it's not, uh, we can't think of it as this virus or this, this entity, this something that we can catch or something that comes upon us, but rather it's this way of categorizing certain patterns of feeling. It's a way of categorizing a certain segment on the grand spectrum of human experience, and therefore we're all susceptible to feeling this way at times. It's when you feel discouraged, not just in life's immediate circumstances, but deep within your soul, in the very core of who you are. So these words are here to help you articulate that feeling when everything just seems to be falling apart around you and you begin to self-destruct. And in despair, you begin to look around and you have this conclusion or, or it seems as if you're all alone. And I wouldn't believe you if you told me that that was never you. 
And even if you can't remember a time where you felt like that, then these words are for your future when inevitably that despair will come. So what I want to do today is just walk through some themes of this psalm to look at just a couple parts of it and then, and then some ways of responding to discouragement that I think this psalm teaches us to engage in. And so the first is that this psalm is a lament. You guys heard that term before? We're in the midst of Lent, which is a good time to lament, good time to talk about lament, the fact that we all will, because of the effects of sin, one day die. That death is an inevitability for this creation because of what sin has done to it. Yet it also helps prepare us for the celebration that death was conquered when Jesus rose from the dead. But there's still a place in the, in the worship in the worship of the people of God for lament. This psalmist, this person who wrote this song, feels oppressed. He feels lonely. He's far from home. And there's doubts on all sides. And poetry is the best way that he can think of to express what that is like. I remember the very first sermon that I preached here at Fort Oaks Midtown. It, was, it wasn't on psalms, but it was on song. It was on, it was on music of some sort. And there was a commentator who said this phrase that really stuck with me. He said, poetry and song can enter portals of our being that prose and logic cannot. And the portal of his being that he's trying to access and to express in this song is his soul. The word soul is used six times in this passage. And when we talk about the soul, we're talking about the core of your being, the deep down identity deep down. That's, that's why it says deep calls to deep in verse 7. And what's it like down there? Well, he gives us two metaphors to try and express what it's like at the core of his being. And this helps us relate to his experience and dwell upon our own times of, of discouragement and longing. The way that I'd break it down is verses 1 through 4, he is thirsting in the desert. But then he, he flops to the other side and in 6 through 10, and he's drowning in the depths. So it's as if the, the psalmist is saying, there's two ways to die out here in this, this spiritual wilderness that I'm in. There's either thirst or there's drowning, and it's as, it's as if I'm experiencing both at one time. We know that that can't be true, but this is what poetry does. This is what song does, is it helps us understand what he's feeling in that moment. He uses these polar, polar experiences with his relationship with water. It's the complete absence of water and the thirst and the longing that that brings. But then on the flip side as well, it's this crushing power of walls of water coming down upon him. And so first, thirsting in the desert, verses 1 through 4, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. The idea of thirst is purposeful. It's purposeful to show us that he hasn't lost belief in God. He's just lost the experience of being close to him. 
And that's what thirst is. Thirst is for something. We thirst for water. It's not that we, we don't believe in water. We just say, oh, water's no good. Water can't help me. There's no such thing as water. No, thirst implies the very real presence and the very real need of water. And that's what he's saying. He, he acknowledges God is there. He hasn't lost his belief. He just needs Him, and He's lost that, that feeling, that experience of what it's like to be near Him and to, to know Him, to hear from Him. He likens this perceived distance, I'm going to call it perceived distance from God to show, he, he likens it to this slow agony of dying by thirst. And it's not, maybe you've read this uh, psalm before, or you've kind of heard songs where it talks about like a deer longing for the streams of water. It's not this pretty picture of, of a deer by some water you know, lapping it up. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a thirsting, dying, wasting away animal. It's a, a, a place of desperation and pain. And he says, when, when can I see Him? When can I come before the face of God again? It's like, it's like when my kids ask, when will Daddy be home? I need Him for something. And then, then as the day wears on, they get more and more impatient asking Allie, when will he be home? When can he help me? And they just get angry. Last night, I was, I was prepping this sermon. I didn't get to help put Adeline to bed, and she woke up angry at me. She woke up mad. You didn't help, me put, you didn't help put me to bed last night. I had to apologize, give her a hug. She wanted to see me. The psalmist wants to see God. It's like his face is hidden from him. This is echoed by his oppressors and, and doubts that creep in on all sides. Where is your God? He's left you. Or maybe he's never been there at all. These are the doubts that he's, he's wrestling with. His present circumstances are mocking his past faith. Have you ever been there? When doubts begin to rewrite history until you're not so sure of the things that you were once certain of. What happens is this mockery of his past faith it causes him to long for the joy of the worship that he used to experience with God's people back at home. God sure felt present then, even if he doesn't now. I, I relate to this. I, I enjoy being here. I think this is important. This is good. But, but remember, remember what it used to be like? Remember a couple Christmases ago where we couldn't fit everybody in here? There's people standing in the back. We'd have full bands every week. I long for those days. I miss those days. It can feel as if God's not present, and I think that's what He's expressing in this song. It's not just nostalgia. It's not just, oh, those were the good, good times, and I wish I could go back to those. No, he's, he's thirsty for something real. He's longing for the experience of God there. So in this song, the universal application of thirst helps us tap into our own internal longings and our own internal discouragement. In the same way that we've all experienced physical thirst, our soul longs for some sort of satisfaction, something that it was made to take in, to experience it. And you can call it what you will. You can call it lovesickness. You can call it wanderlust. You can call it homesickness. Call it restlessness. We feel it, and the psalmist names it. He knows that fallen human beings are thirsty. They are thirsty for what they were made for and what they lost in the Garden of Eden. The presence of God, the face of God, perfect closeness to Him. There's only one source that will satisfy you, and that's the living God. 
Living in His presence is what we are made for. And this psalm is for someone who feels that loss acutely. That loss is what the psalmist feels as he writes. It's, it's like drinking his own tears. It's that kind of darkness that, that consumes our soul so much that tears, tears seem to be more abundant than anything else. And in giving his soul only this diet of tears, he then experiences an entirely new metaphor of discouragement, and he calls it drowning. In verses 6 through 10, he says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. A deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night, His song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to my God, to my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He's far from home. He's in the headwaters of the Jordan River up in the the Hermon mountain range. Nothing is familiar. Nothing is friendly. It's like this feeling of being forcefully crushed by roaring waters. Do, we, do you have any idea what that's like? I, I to, a, to a small degree, I remember being inside a waterfall one time and just feeling the immense power of it. The pounding waves relentlessly coming down upon you, it's, it's a frightening feeling. He's in the midst of this watery spiritual chaos and he's completely overwhelmed. Through this morning, the whispers return, where is your God? Where is He? It's what causes Him to call out, am I forgotten? Am I forgotten? But then there's also this fighting for hope that we see in verses 5 and verses 11. When He says, why are you cast down on my soul? He's speaking to Himself. It's this internal dialogue. Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Each section ends with this refrain, one in which He is offering Himself and all all others who ever read or sing this psalm, words of comfort and encouragement, hope in God, you will again praise Him, for He is your salvation. And hope here isn't just wishful thinking, I just hope God shows up, I just hope He's there. No, it's this resting in God's character and His His promises, knowing that He'll come through and knowing that whatever you are facing, God is working out good in your life and has this incorruptible inheritance waiting for you. That's the hope that we have. That's what He's telling Himself. Hope in God. Remember that. Notice there's this, this future orientation. He's looking forward to once again feeling close to God, the God of His salvation, but He's not there yet. He's pointing, he's pointing himself forward and saying, look at that. Don't just look at this. And that's where the psalm ends, in that tension, in the midst of the fight. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to sleep at night in that same position. Tension, non-resolution, in the middle of the fight. And my guess is that you have too. You may have last night. And so, after that overview, I want to I point out just four things that I think this, 
psalm teaches us about responding to discouragement, things that we can learn, things that we can draw out about how this psalmist approaches God, how he views his situation, what he does when he's feeling this despair. And the first is be honest with God. The messy honesty of many of the psalms are encouraging to me. King David, who writes about 70, around 70 of the psalms, often exposes his heart to us with the other authors of the psalm, like this one here. And the reason that that is helpful is because, not because it makes for a good study of another soul, but it helps guide and give me words to express my own soul. And there's so much about my internal life that I feel like I need to clean up before I can come to God, before I can be presentable, before I can speak to Him. In fact, I often even speak to Him differently by using different words. And maybe that's in an attempt to to really kind of cover up who I am. But that's not what we see here. That's not what we see in the Psalms. He says, why have you forgotten me? He just spits it out. It's like being angry at your mom or dad for forgetting to pick you up after school or after baseball practice. Has that ever happened to you? You get in the car, you forgot me? I, it's just that feeling of offense, that feeling of pain. And then he says, why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Also in verse 9, he says, why God? And that's where we all start, isn't it? Asking that question, why? It's not wrong to say it. It's not wrong to go to Him with reverence, of course, not to dishonor Him, not to interrogate Him, but to express your confusion, to express your frustration, to express your disappointment and your hurt. And He's honest enough to say, it feels like I'm forgotten. That can feel wrong to us, to utter something like that to God, but we know He doesn't believe that He's forgotten. Why? Because in the previous verse, verse 8, he says that by day the Lord commands his steadfast love and by night his song is within in him. He knows that God is present. So the problem isn't God's presence, the problem is that he can't feel it. It's that the other feelings are taking over. He's being overwhelmed by them. He's not committing a theological misstep, just as Jesus isn't committing a theological misstep when on the cross He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's expressing what it's like. The psalmist is just being honest, and and this is how he feels in his soul, and there's something important for us to acknowledge here. It's a nuanced point because we are to speak rightly about God and we are to help others understand right doctrine as well. But in the midst of caring for someone in turmoil, lay off the semantic corrections just a little bit. Let them speak. Don't correct the spelling of a discouraged man. Have you ever been in, in like a text, uh, not an argument, but a text discussion where you, where you disagree and someone corrects your spelling? It's infuriating. Or, or when you're face-to-face, maybe you're having an argument with somebody and they correct your grammar. Oh, man, it just totally derails the, the progress that you've made. Those who have been through premarital counseling with me know that I say what I say about good barriers or about barriers to communication. Beware of answering a feeling with a fact. You need to give validation to that feeling. That's what's trying to be expressed there. Don't let the fear of being theologically 
incorrect, keep you from running to your father and telling, just telling him what's in your heart. Just go. Utter whatever you can. Cry if you have to and let the Spirit speak for you. And that's what he means in verse 7 when he says, deep, calls out to deep, from the deep darkness of your soul, calling out to the, the vastness and the greatness of a loving and sovereign and limitless God. Where does your help come from? It comes from a God who loves you and whose love is too great for you to wrap your mind around. Charles Spurgeon was a great um, preacher. Um, who often struggled with spiritual depression and discouragement and despair. And he writes a lot on this particular Psalm 42, and he says, Yes, feel the loneliness of life. Here is a dreadful deep for you to sail on and a tempestuous deep much to be feared, for your little boat may easily be wrecked. But don't forget that there is another deep, whose remembrance will remove from you the bitterness of your present sorrow. There is a love in heaven towards you which will never grow cold, immortal and unchanging love. This is what God wants, for you to come to Him in His endless love. We shouldn't be intimidated or hesitant to do so. We should come as easily as a child runs to his father. Why wouldn't you just be honest with Him? Vulnerability is the key to any good relationship, and it Our relationship with the Lord is no exception. So that's number one, be honest with God. But number two, remember God's work. It says in verse four, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts, songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He remembers, he thinks back to when God was doing great things and he could He could taste and he could experience it firsthand. Then he also says in verse 6, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. When he feels this way, what does he do? Therefore, my soul is cast down, therefore I remember you. I go back to remembering what you've done, what you've done in my life, what you've done in your people, what you've done in the church. And then in the midst of life's troubles, he remembers something crucial in verse 7. When I was reading commentaries, I was confused by verse 7. I couldn't tell when it says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and waves have gone over me. I couldn't tell if that was, if that was, does he feel hardship and sorrow? Is that what it's referring to? It's referring to just the pain and and the feeling of drowning and the feeling of loss? Or is it referring to God's cascading and His overwhelming love? And the reason I was confused and the reason maybe I thought it was the latter was because verse 8 goes on to talk about the steadfast love of God. But after thinking about it, I think this might be just a false dichotomy. I was just starting at the wrong spot. Could it not be both? Does it have to be hardships and sorrow or God's love? Are they mutually exclusive? Or could it be that in life's trials you should remind yourself that as, ex- as mysterious as it might be to you, the waves of hardship that roll over you are His waves. That's why it says, your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And that His waves are a part of His sovereign guiding love in your life. 
It's mysterious to us, and sometimes it's hard to swallow. Sometimes we think, I, I don't know that I could believe that God would just bring this upon me, that it would be His waves that are pounding me down. But God doesn't make accidents. COVID-19 this past year has not, was not a whoops on God's part, and neither are the individual circumstances of your life. And do you believe that? Even when your discouragement is at its worst, that God is sovereignly, sovereignly loving you in some way that is only knowable to Him in that moment. I think that's what this psalm teaches, and it's something so large and beyond our understanding that it should lead us to worship. And I think that's number three, that this psalmist, what he does is he goes to worship through his discouragement. It says in verse 8, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So he's honest before God. He's meditative and he's remembering. But then what does he do? He sings. He's pleading to God for the saving of his life and he does it through song. Not all songs need to be the same. Not all songs need to be the type of songs that we start our worship services with, our call to worship songs, the joyful and the jubilant and the happy praise. Some songs can be tearful. They can be dark cries for help in the loneliness of night. Sometimes we don't have the other kind of song to sing. Sometimes we don't have that, that joy, and it's, it's hard to express it in that way. Sometimes all we can do is remember singing those songs like he does. He remembers the, the glad shouts and the, the joyful singing with the people of God. He remembers it, but then instead he sings a lament about how he wants to be joyful again. He wants that back, and that's okay. The point is to sing anyway. The point is to go to God in worship anyway because worship is the great thirst quencher. He's thirsty for God, and that's where he meets him. That's where he experiences God's closeness, is by engaging in that action. It's where God, time and time again, has watered the dry souls of his people. Psalm 63, 1 through 4 says this, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Does this sound familiar? It sounds just like Psalm 42, and then it goes on to say this, So I have looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. And he says, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Because I feel, these way, because I feel this way, because I feel thirsty, because I long for you, I will then go and worship. That's where I meet you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and I will lift my hands in praise. It's all over the Psalms. In Psalm 68, 24 through 26, it says this, Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them the virgins playing their tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are Israel's fountain. So why does he go to worship when he's feeling discouraged, when he's feeling thirsty, when he's feeling cast down? Why is it that you run to God in worship? Because he is the fountain. He is where 
the thirst is quenched, going to Him in worship. But for this psalmist, that experience is gone. It's only the memory that remains. He's alone. He's wasting away. And what does he do? He writes a song. It's given to us here. It's for him to sing, but also for the people to sing. He says, if I'm feeling like this, then certainly other people are feeling like this. Worship is the means by which he draws near to God. And so that raises an important question for us. I'll ask this, what, what is it exactly that we are doing here on, on Sundays? What are we doing? If you've made it a habit to, this isn't, this isn't meant to be, a, you know, harsh or anything like that, but if you've made it a habit to simply attend or tune in once, twice a month, then you probably don't understand what we're doing here. When it comes to the worship of God, both what we do and what we don't do does something to us. I'll say that again. When, when it comes to the worship of God, both what we do and what we don't do does something to us. We are easily formed. We are easily influenced. Our habits, both of presence and of absence, form us in huge, huge ways. Worship renews us, it sustains us, it shepherds our emotions, it uh, awakens us from a deadly soul slumber that lets down our guard against the lies of the enemy and against being subject to the mastery of each passing feeling. That's what it does. It strengthens you against that. It, it raises your defenses. God, has, God knows this. That's how we were made. We were made to worship Him. We were made to be in relationship with Him. And God has always chosen to manifest His presence in a unique way when His people are gathered together as a means of encouragement, as a, remain, as a means of reminders, promises of His love. That's why it's no surprise that when our habits develop in the other direction, when we are absent, infrequent, flaky with our worship, we can feel so thirsty. And what we attempt to do then is we attempt to satiate, to, to satisfy that thirst in other ways, other ways that cannot satisfy because they were only made to be satisfied by the living God, Israel's fountain, through worship. And I understand, I understand that discouragement can feel crippling at times, it can feel like you either have to put on a fake smile and go participate and be around other people or just skip worshiping God altogether. But again, be honest with God about that and be honest with others about that and go to Him in worship as a remedy for your discouragement, not, not in spite of it. That's the worship of the Psalms that we see. And then number four, maybe chiefly in this song, possibly the, song, the, the reason that this song was written was to speak truth to yourself. Some people say preach, preach the gospel to yourself. I feel like it's just easier to say speak truth to yourself. The refrain, verse 5 and verses, verses 5 and then 11 and then again at the end of Psalm 43 is this beautiful, healthy self-talk. 
when you were discouraged, one of the easiest things to do is, is listen to the fearful speculation of our own hearts. And that's why it's so crucial that the whispers of those fears and anxiety be met by words that we know are true. Through being honest with God, remembering His work in our lives, and then moving towards Him in worship, those three things, those first three, I think provide the power and the strength that we need to then speak truth to ourselves, to say, hope in God, for you again shall praise Him, your God and your salvation. Martin Lloyd-Jones is another preacher from England who also struggled with depression, spiritual depression, was oftentimes discouraged, and he wrote at length on this psalm, Psalm 42. This is a a long quote, but I I think it's really good. I want to read it, it to you. It says, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves." And he goes on to explain what this means. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment when you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you nonetheless. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment, this psalmist's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you being disquieted? You must turn on yourself, unbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God. Hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed and unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who He is, and what He has done, and what God has pledged Himself to do. Then, having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself. Defy other people. Defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This this isn't just optimistic, positive thinking, look on the bright side, self-help theology. You should be honest about the horrors of this world and the consequences of sin in your own life and in the lives of others. Be honest about the fact that that is sometimes terrible. We should speak that, acknowledge it. But don't simply wallow there and doubt that God loves you. What we need to do is remember what God has done. He's proven that He's trustworthy. He's proven that He's worth every ounce of praise we can muster, even when we're low and even when we are broken. And then what you need to do is take yourself by the shoulders and say, you think think you've sunk too deep for God to rescue? Look at Christ. See Him on the cross. Was that a depth of sorrow that was beyond God's reach? Christ, Jesus can empathize with us in in a more full and deep way than any other person can. 
He can empathize with you, your feeling of being forgotten, for, forsaken by God. The depth of His pain and sorrow is more than we can comprehend. And so He welcomes you. He says, I know, I know, I know what it's like. I know that it's hard. I know what it's like to experience the silence of the Father and to feel so alone. But I'm here to assure you that that is not the case, that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's why I came. And that's all that the psalmist wants. He wants to be reassured by God. He wants to be reassured of His salvation. He longs to experience that again, to be close to His Savior, to be in His presence. And that's why we have an assurance each Sunday as a part of our liturgy, our whole liturgy. Liturgy is just the the word that we use to describe all the things that we put together as an aspect of the worship service. It's all purposeful. The whole liturgy is meant to help you engage in healthy self-talk. That's why there's a call and a response. That's why we ask you guys to speak things. We are saying things to our own soul. We're calling ourselves out of the pit. We're lashing ourselves back to the mast, the original, uh, the ballast of the gospel truth that has been given to us in God's Word. In speaking, in singing, in praying, in opening God's Word together, we tell, you tell yourself and we tell each other what is true. We reacquaint ourselves with a Savior who knows what it's like to be human. But He offers us much more than that. He offers us much more than simply empathy. Verse 2, the psalmist is, is crying out, when shall I come and appear before God? At least in the ESV, you might even see a note on the bottom that could also be translated, when shall I see the face of God? When shall I see the face of God? Generations later, Jesus would come and He would give an answer to that question. And He would say in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When we see Jesus, we see God. We see the glory of His face and we hear and receive the gospel. We experience Him in a way that we could not prior to that. 2 Corinthians 4 calls it the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When we look at Jesus, when we read His words, when we engage in a relationship with Him, that is when we see the Father. That is when we see God. That is when His face appears to us. He is the exact image of God, His representation, His Redeemer here on earth. In Jesus, God offers us so much more than temporary relief from our circumstances. He can grant that, yes, but He offers us more. Following Christ is not simply some escape from oppression or even from discouragement. Some of the greatest theologians I know, I just mentioned two of them, often rode the ups and downs of spiritual depression. But what sets them apart is that they knew the presence of God and thirsted for it so much because they knew it was the only hope that they had. And because of His redeeming love in Jesus Christ, the presence of God that was lost in the garden is with us, even in the deepest despair. So Romans 8, 35 through 39 says this. We'll close with this reminder. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Deep cries out to deep, the deep, deep love of Christ for salvation and for comfort. And the promise is that no matter how you feel, how discouraged you are, or how despairing you feel, God's love for you, and not just you, but you, individually, God's love for you is deeper still. We need to tell ourselves these things over and over again when we are low and when we are broken, that the gospel redeems, that we have hope. We again shall rise to praise Him. So let's pray together. God, we need Your words constantly. We need Your encouragement. We are so easily formed. We so easily drift away from You. I pray that You would call us back this morning. That in Christ we have someone who perfectly empathizes and understands what it's like to be discouraged, to be brought low, but at the same time offers us more than that. You offer us presence. You offer us yourself. And that is the gospel. You are the gospel. You're the point. Being with you is what all creation has been striving for since the day sin entered the world. God, and now we have the answer in Jesus. We have your face, your presence with us. And so I pray that in the deepest of despair, in discouragement, God, that you would bring us back to you, that you would remind us, that you would help strengthen us to speak what is true to our own souls, to engage in worship of you, to be honest with you, to remember the ways that you have in the past shown your power and shown your might and shown your strength. Remind us of those things now as we continue in worship, as we take communion in a few moments. I pray that it would be this, this tangible picture, something that brings us back once again to the fact that we can never sink too low to sink beneath the reach of your love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.